0: Hello listeners, welcome to that tech show with me Chris Adams and this other fellow on the opposite side of the microphone, Sam Gregory. Hello. Hi. Uh so, I'm oh, I forgot to do the intro. This is the show, this podcast. What is this podcast? This podcast is the podcast that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. There we go, nailed it after I remembered it. Uh, well, on the show today, we have uh, Mark Hirschberg, uh, who is going to talk to us a bit about career growth and his 20 years of experience at MIT. Yes, that MIT. Uh, he is going to bring that into your ears and it will be going through your brain waves, no matter how it is you're listening to us. But welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for letting us into your ears, as usual. Anyway, so today I've had a bit of a, an experience. This morning I had a delivery. I have a cooker hood from, you know, like one of the reseller places. That's a fun thing to say, cooker hood. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I had a cooker hood. I didn't get the whole <laughs> cooker hood. I just got the chimney. Oh. It said on the box, it said two of three and the delivery driver works for the company. And you went, hang on a minute. This isn't right, is it? It says two of three on here and I've only got one box. They've only packed two, one, of the, one of the three boxes, which is ridiculous.
1: That's annoying. Yeah,
0: I mean, two out of three wouldn't be bad, as Meatloaf rightly points out, but um, one is no good at all. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear about your misfortunes. No one likes to uh, have misfortunes. Yeah, well, it'd be nice to have a cooker hood. Mm, that's still a great word to say. I think I'm going to. that's the word of the day, I think. Is it? The word of the day? Is it one word or two? Uh,
0: I don't know. It's two words, right? It's cooker hood. Yeah, it's two words, definitely two words.
1: I've uh, I've got some news. Go on then. I'm I'm changing.
0: My body's changing. Metamorphosing. Is, is is the mustache is gone. What have you
1: turned into now? I'm mid transition. Actually, I'm not mid transition. I'm early transition. I've uh, I've got braces. Have you? Like In- Invisalign. Well, not Invisalign, like a cheaper brand cuz, you know, Invisalign. Like, cuz
0: it's now the the patent has expired and now everybody's making plastic braces.
1: Is that actually what it is? I believe so. Uh, yeah. So you might hear me like, I tend to like s- suck them in a little bit. So you might hear a bit of sucking. <laughs> that's, that's wrong. But...
0: oh No, I can't. I can't. I can't hear now. You've got, you got a slight, slight lisp. Mm.
1: I'm getting used to the, the lisp a little bit. You would have thought you'd take them out to do a podcast, but never mind. <laughs> You've got to leave them in for pretty much the whole time. Plus it makes for content. So I left them in. Oh, I see. Probably well, we take them out next time. So I never thought your teeth were that bad. No, I didn't either. You know, I had the money. It was, it was bread. Cause I went for Invisalign and it was four grand. And I'm like, I don't care about my teeth that much. Uh, I'm pretty handsome as it is. I don't need to spend four grand on this, you know. <laughs> but I think modesty is probably your best quality. As I've heard.
0: <laughs> as I've heard. <laughs> so how how long is it going to be then? How many, how many months of? Four months, apparently. Oh, that's not too bad. Are you revealing the cost? If it wasn't four grand,
1: how much is it? It was one thousand, one thousand five hundred ninety-five or something. That's a, that's a significant discount. Really? And I asked him, like, what's the deal? What's the deal,
0: bro? I, be- I believe it is the patent that expired and now that we're able to make them. There's many competitors to it now.
1: Yeah, no, there is. And there are cheaper options, which I found out yesterday, but never mind.
0: Today's episode is not sponsored by Invisalign. <laughs> well, that's exciting to see how that evolves a different type of technology mouth technology particularly on a podcast because that really translates
1: yes <laughs> well it, it, in a way it does because they can actually hear it well they'll only be able to hear it when i'm not wearing them which i won't next time but i thought you know content 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 should we uh should we do mark an introduction then anyway Mark gives us deep insight into what it takes to grow your career in tech, whether that be startups or large organizations. We get into career planning, what he wishes he knew, knowing what he knows now. Well, that's a lot of knows. What it's like at MIT. We touch on imposter syndrome and how to overcome it and how his experience as a CTO affects his ability to teach others. I think that really emphasised your lisp.
0: Um, I would like to do a translation for listeners to say that imposter syndrome is actually imposter syndrome, and and it was CTO. (laughs) Shut up, man. Well, listeners will be pleased to know that Sam doesn't have a lisp throughout the episode as this was recorded a little while ago. So uh, without further ado, let's speak to
2: Mark. Hi, I'm Mark Hirschberg. I'm a CTO, MIT instructor, and the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You.
1: Wonderful. Well, let's, let's go right back then. I mean, where did this all start, this, in, this interest in careers and tech and all the rest of it?
2: When I came out of MIT in the 90s, I started as a software engineer. And I realized early on that I wanted to get into management. I wanted to become the CTO the chief technology officer overseeing all the engineers. I realized early on that to do that, it wasn't just about being the best engineer. Sure, I needed those skills, but there were other skills I needed too. Leadership, negotiating, networking, team building, interviewing. No one ever taught me these skills, so I had to learn them for myself. And as I did so, I realized these are not just for those of us in the C-suite. They are for everyone in the company. The whole company is better off when even the most junior people have these skills. So I began to train up my team. And as I was doing this, MIT had been surveying companies and found these are the same skills that companies wanted in the people they hired. Not just people out of MIT, not just college students, but everyone they hired, they want to see these skills. So MIT began to create a program to address that, to instill these skills in our students. When I heard about it, I reached out. I said, you know, I've been developing some training material for my company. I'm happy to share it with you. And I thought that would just be a single conversation. But MIT asked me to then help create the class and quickly asked me to help teach the class, which I've been doing for over 20 years. So I've had this parallel career of being a CTO. But in parallel, teaching at MIT and elsewhere, and of course, the speaking, the book and the app and everything else that's come out of it.
1: You really dropped yourself in there, didn't you, with MIT? He just wanted a conversation.
2: (laughs) Well, and that's how even when we plan for our careers, we have to be open to doors opening up for us and seeing where they lead if it looks like an interesting path.
1: Sure. So, talk about then the this CTO role then, because obviously that's going to be you know crucial to to your a bit of context setting with the with the listeners. Then, what, what, what company was this? Was it your own? Would you did you found it?
2: I've been a CTO, or today the term we use is actually CTPO, Chief Technology and Product Officer. I typically run engineering product and data science together and usually i'm the de facto hr person as well often i do startup companies typically a b c round i like it when they're earlier and we're still growing but i've also helped some fortune 500s who wanted to innovate and create startups within their organization so i've helped a few of those my companies have really ranged from about three to three hundred thousand people And I've been through every stage from that early inception, from sitting in someone's living room and trying to come up with what are we going to do through fundraising, growth, pivots, exits, some successful, some not. And I've worked across a number of fields from financial modeling to labor marketplaces, videos, ad tech media, lots of cybersecurity, created a software language, whole bunch of stuff, probably other stuff I'm not even remembering.
1: So you what were you a gun for hire then in terms of your CTO?
2: Were you I've gone back and forth between being a full-time employee as well as being a consultant or a fractional CTO for some of them? And really from my perspective, that's just a tax issue. That's just whether they're paying me in the US on a W-2 basis and withholding taxes or 1099 and I'm paying taxes. But either way, the job is the same for me. So I've never really distinguished at some companies. I like going in. I like being part of it for a number of years and trying to grow it. Other companies just needed short-term help or they've needed fractional help and just said, you know, we're trying to limit our cash burn. So can you just work for us for a little bit? And I've been happy to do that as well.
1: Nice. I'm going to go right into it, right? Because there's this thing that I I was thinking about. When it comes to, you contacted uh, MIT with regards to kind of uh, career development and various things like that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Absolutely correct me. But, you know, my perception on on early stage startup is that there is no career development. It's just like land on your feet, figure it out. And there's not really a lot of that in there. I mean, of course, you're developing your career. Of course, you're developing those soft skills. But it's not necessarily from that kind of mentorship aspect. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Is that fair to say? Um, Was a lot of your inspiration from that missing aspect? Or um, talk to us about that and uh, let's let's see where it goes.
2: (laughs) Great question. And your instinct is right. I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a company, we were maybe about 40 people and the engineers were getting antsy and saying, "Well, can you tell me about my career path? Where will I be three years from now? And my answer is, I don't know. I can't tell you, oh, we're going to have a level two engineer, and a level three and all this, and here's your path forward. The hope is that three years from now, we're still in business. That's not guaranteed. It was looking pretty positive, but we don't have that clear path. I usually tell them, work hard, and I'm going to hire under instead of over you. And that's about all I can promise. So you're right that there's no path forward the way at... A company like Goldman Sachs or Google or McKinsey, you can lay out where will I be in five years, 10 years. They can map your entire career there. You don't get that at startups. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be planning your career. And one of the sections in the book, I talk about big companies versus startups. When you go to, say, a McKinsey, HR will sit down with you and talk about where you will go and what it takes to get there. When you're at a startup, no one's going to do that. On the other hand, as startup, we always talk about, well, there's no walls at a startup. You can walk over to anyone's office because their office is next to yours. It also means you don't have other hard boundaries. So early in my career, I realized as long as I got my work done, there was a whole bunch of other work that was needed to get done. Sometimes fires that needed to be put out. Sometimes things we needed to do that just no one had time for. And no one said, wait, you're in engineering, that's marketing, you're not allowed to do that. They said, oh, great, thank you for doing that. And so you could take the initiative and you could either formally start to work on things. You could even just say, hey, can I just listen in on that meeting you're having? I'm I'm really curious about it. And so you can really expand your skill set in different ways. And that's an advantage I think you get startups But you have to be a type of person who thrives in that unstructured environment. Other people, the advantage in big companies, you have a path laid out. You obviously have more resources and support. And so different paths work for different people. But I happen to be a very self-directed person.
1: Mm. And so was that your approach then going to MIT? Was it speaking more about how to thrive in a startup world or... Is it the traditional career development stuff that you approach them with?
2: It wasn't career paths per se. It was these other skills. It was leadership, communication, team building, negotiating. These were the skills that I realized were important. And recognizing that most of us are never actually taught how to do them. We've heard of them. We have all heard, for example, oh, networking, it's so important. It's not what you know, it's who you know. But no one actually sat you down and said, oh, and by the way, here's how to actually do it effectively. So these were the skills I was training up the folks on my team. And when I heard MIT was working on, it it was just that there wasn't the career piece. And in fact, after teaching these skills in the program for about five years, I said, "You know, I want to do some talk on how to think about your career plan overall, how to structure all this. And that talk I started to do year after year at MIT and then elsewhere. And of course I was mentoring and training people in my company and elsewhere. And that talk turned into chapter one of the book, career planning. And then the other chapters come from the skills that we've identified as what companies want.
0: I was always taught that networking was only one letter away from not working. Uh (laughs) That's cute, I haven't heard that one before. (laughs) It Might be more of a British thing um, <laughs> um, so I, I mean how much of your book um you know which is obviously the career toolkit, how much of that is is you trying to tell people this is the stuff I wish i'd known because I mean I'm interested in the in the sense that you know you studied at MIT as well I think you might be the first person I've spoken to who studied at MIT so I'm fascinated about that in general, but also was that what you wanted to do do. Did you want to go to MIT and, uh, and initially? Uh, you know, was this all part of a big career plan, or did you just find your way through it?
2: I had wanted to go to MIT since I was about twelve years old, hmm. so that was a goal I learned about when I was a kid. Prior to that, it had been Harvard and Princeton, but then at twelve, I thought MIT was much cooler in a certain way for those yeah. of us who <laughs> like technology. And so that's where I set my sights on, and was fortunate to get in. I loved being at MIT. Now, you're right that there's almost a, a theme in the book of this is all the stuff I wish I knew when I was younger. Readers of the book, when you look at the comments that we get on Amazon, that is probably the number one type of comment. I wish I learned this earlier. I wish I learned this in school. I wish I had this 20 years ago. But still, I'm so glad I have it today because even people in their 40s and 50s, I even know one guy in his 60s, who upon reading the book said, this is great, thank you. Wish I had earlier, but it's still helpful for me today.
0: What was it at 12 years old that that inspired you to want to go to MIT?
2: My mother was reading an article in Reader's Digest about hacks at MIT. And for those not familiar, the term hacking actually comes from MIT, it comes from the Tech Motto Railroad Club, and it means to do something clever. Obviously, that's moved into do something clever on computers and that took on a negative aspect, malicious hacking. But the term hack at MIT still means to do something clever. Some of the more famous hacks, for example, we have a giant dome on top of about a 12-story building. It's a very iconic dome and building at MIT. Students like to put things up there. And by put things there, I mean, there was a telephone booth they put up there one time. And of course, (laughs) when the facilities people went up to go take it down, the phone rang and they picked it up. And the person on the phone said, what are you doing up there? You're not supposed to be on the roof. They put a police (laughs) car up there with working lights. And for when the police did go up to investigate, there were donuts and coffee because doing those little extra things really kind of add to it. Uh, for the Lord of the Rings release, they surrounded the Dome with a giant ring of power. <laughs> so we we do clever things like that, not just on the Dome, uh, but throughout MIT. Doing clever things are just fun and technically challenging that people appreciate.
0: Are they student initiatives or are they sort of almost university-sponsored initiatives? Because that does sound like
2: mischievous. <laughs> <laughs> they are student initiatives. and. Technically, they violate the rules. Students are not supposed to be on the roof, for example. But MIT turns a blind eye to it. They tacitly endorse it because they know the students are safe when they do it. If the students do any damage, the, the ethos of the hacking community is fix it. So I've heard stories of they accidentally broke a window. So then they broke into the room where they store the replacement windows and stayed up all night to replace the window. Or when they put, for example, a giant propeller beanie on the dome, before doing so, they went to the MIT wind tunnel, tested it in a scaled version <laughs> to make sure this would be safe, and had delivered that morning to the facilities uh, some documentation explaining how to safely get up there, how to safely take it down. So they are very thoughtful in what they do. And that's why MIT tacitly says okay, we'll we'll let you do it. We're not going to actively try and stop you as long as you continue to be responsible.
0: Did it change your, your perspective as a student at MIT about what you wanted to do in your career? Because obviously you've gone into, um, into you know, very heavily technology, but um, you, know, you started out
2: studying physics I right? I have undergraduate degrees in physics and computer science. I also mired in political science. And then I did my graduate work in cryptography. So I was very quantitative, very tech. I wanted to do law as well, but there's only so many hours in a day. I did wind up moving away from physics for various reasons, including at the time physics funding was declining. It was the end of the cold war and the cold war was just a boon for physics funding. That's where all the military money went for R and D. Now it it was pulling back because the cold war had been over. Little did we know where we'd wind up today. Mm. And I looked and said, okay, physics seems to be a field that was perhaps shrinking a bit, whereas software was growing. So I oriented myself more to software engineering. But you're right. It was a decision of this STEM field versus that. What I had no expectations on was how important these other skills would be. Because remember, I hadn't learned the skills at the time. I didn't appreciate them until early in my career. I started tripping over things and saying, "Why I'm getting the right answers? Why is this not working out? Why don't people look to me as the leader?" Oh, well, there's these other skills I need to learn, and that's what started to lead me down this path unexpectedly.
0: And did you did you find yourself developing any of those leadership skills while you were at uh, MIT, or or was that something that only happened in your first few um, years in employment?
2: I'd say a little bit. I was in the student government for, I think, about three years. And so I was active. I was an officer of my fraternity at times. So in a, it, I took nascent steps. And we talk about how in school, when you're on a sports team or in a club, you can start working on your leadership. But really, I I think of that myself and most people I see, not all, it's like watching a toddler take first steps. You're You're trying, <laughs> you're being a leader for the first time. But it's not until you're in a company and every day you're doing it as opposed to uh, an hour every few weeks that you're really starting to develop your strength in those skill sets.
0: Yeah, I think that's that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's a great safe space to make some of those mistakes because I did a similar thing in terms of being involved in uh, sort of student government and I think it's interesting you were mentioning before about you know the the minors that you did in your undergraduate because we don't really have that option in the UK. You know you kind of pick something and you do it. Uh, you don't really have the option to you know try a bit of physics, try a bit of law, try a bit of computer science and see what see what sticks. I think that's a really nice aspect, a nice element of the uh, of the, of the American system because you at least get to figure certain things out. Whereas changing courses is a little bit more. Um, Uh, intense, let's say, in the UK?
2: Most universities in the US have what they call the general requirements. You need to take one math, one science, one language, one history, no matter what your major is, to give you some exposure. And then you also have the option to potentially minor in a particular field where you take fewer classes than a major. Now, MIT, we have some of the most stringent requirements, general requirements. Everyone needs to take two semesters of calculus, two of physics, one of chemistry, one of biology, we also require everyone takes at least eight humanities classes. So even though most people at MIT, 95% plus are studying STEM, we do, by the way, have English majors and theater majors and others, but most of us are doing science and engineering, but no matter what your major is, you have to take roughly one class per semester that's in the humanities, because MIT has recognized the importance of balancing those technical skills with a broader education. And I think that's especially important because those of us who work in tech, it's easy just to focus on the engineering and getting the right answer, but it's very important that we start asking questions such as how will this technology be used and whether that's bias in our data science models or ways the technology can be used to harm others, intentionally or unintentionally. These are important questions that we are best suited to answer because people outside our field usually don't have the full understanding of the technology the way we do. And so it's important that we have an understanding of the subtle implications of what we're doing.
0: Mm. So getting onto, you know, you you were talking just before about uh, starting the teaching for for mit well, it was in 2001 so you've you've come back you, you've had a few years out in uh developing the career developing those started those leadership skills did you feel when you came back to mit to start teaching that you had um enough to to offer to start being able to give back your experience that you'd had or was that just the start of you know you'd 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 found something that had piqued your interest and something you'd wanted to develop which you've you know gone on to do over the last 20 years.
2: It's funny you asked that question. Now I was a competitive ballroom dancer throughout my 20s used to compete all over the country. I actually went to England a couple times for oh, wow. events there. and one of the things I learned in the ballroom community most people who most instructors for example, are teaching beginners they're teaching people because their girlfriend dragged them to go do this for a couple of weeks, or they're getting married, or it just looked like a fun thing for a couple of friends to do. And there are instructors who are world-class, and those were the people I was taking lessons from. But there were also instructors more along the lines of, if you've seen Dirty Dancing, there's a scene where Patrick Swayze says, yeah, we were in high school and this guy came by and taught us some moves and how to break them down and teach them to others. And that's how I became a dance instructor. And there are people in the world like that. They didn't have a dance background. They didn't grow up dancing, competing, but they just learned the basics. And they're about two months ahead of the couples they're teaching. (laughs) But that's fine. If you're a beginning wedding couple, you just need to know what's the beat. Do you step with the left foot or right foot? And even someone who is a relative novice teaching could still provide them some benefit. You don't need the world-class expert to teach you step with your left foot on that beat You can have someone more more of a beginner and they still get value. And when I joined the class back in 2001, you're right. I certainly didn't know as much as I know today. I think I did have some early understanding. I was far ahead of where the students were and enough that I could start to address their questions because they were so junior. Although here's the interesting thing. When I first taught that first year we last minute decided to add instructors like myself. It wasn't part of the plan. The plan was for professors only, but the head of the program after I was helping to set up said, I think there's value bringing in practitioners like yourself. Okay, but we need to find a dozen other people like you. So we scrambled to find people. And I was probably one of the oldest instructors at the time, non-professor instructors at the time in that first class. 20 years later, I have typically been one of the youngest instructors because the class has matured. We have a better reputation, a lot more people, CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies come in to help teach this. And so I've become one of the younger people, despite now being 20 some years older.
0: Wow. So how how long in terms of Being that couple of steps ahead of the rest of those that you were teaching, how long did it take you to get to a point where you
2: felt like you were far enough ahead that you
0: were comfortable?
2: (laughs) I certainly felt comfortable teaching even that first year because I I was confident in what I did know, even though there was so much more for me to learn. And of course, in these fields, like in technology, you're never going to know everything. There's always more to learn. In fact, even teaching had been great because I would continue to learn from the other instructors. They would bring in new ideas, new concepts, or even just different perspectives. And even the act of teaching helped me grow and develop. But I'd say somewhere around five years in is where I really started to feel, okay, I've I've really got this now, not just in what I'm teaching, but feeling very confident within these fields and not just why I know more than they do, but... I'm I'm feeling pretty good about this.
0: Were you aware of your comfort zone as well at the time? I mean, I'm I'm curious. I'm, I don't know if you touch on this in the book, but I think you know. I, I think in my early, my mid mid to early twenties, I suppose I was very much driven by ego and an ability that I you know I thought I had that well, in, in some <laughs> to a certain degree was was okay. But you know, um, I think that sort of you power yourself through a little bit by ego and not knowing what you don't know. If you know what I mean, and so. I'm curious as to how much were you aware of that comfort zone, and, and do you do you think about it differently on when you look back at, at where you came from and what you were doing at that time?
2: I was fortunate enough to get that within about two or three years of starting my career, because I came out of MIT rather cocky, thinking, hey, I've got multiple degrees from MIT, I'm really good at this, I know what I'm doing, and very quickly learned... Not only was there more for me to learn on the technology side, I thought, okay, well, sure, there's more technology out there, but recognized it wasn't just about getting the right answer. It was about asking the right questions and conveying those answers in the right way to the right people. Now that's very different from what we do in school because in school, the professor hands you a piece of paper and there's a blank spot and your entire job is to calculate an answer and put the right answer in the right spot. That's all we do. It's just about getting the answer right. But in the real world, it's a lot more complicated. And that's what they're not teaching you in school. So I definitely had a couple missteps early on where I said, why isn't this working? I'm getting the right answer. I know I know how to do it, but something's wrong here. And that's what opened my eyes to there's more going on than just the engineering, just the mathematics.
0: Yeah, and I can feel I I share a lot of, I think... um Similarities to a degree you talked about the, the the competitive ballroom dancing. I was a competitive racing driver in my in my teens, and so i think I think the competition aspect makes you think s- sort of differently that you know you have to so you, you have to be able to adjust and flex what's happening based on your surroundings and what's going on like you know if if you accidentally make a misstep in 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 a ballroom uh, in a ballroom dance. I presume you can't just stop and go. Hang on a second, can I just do that again? And it's very much the same on a racetrack. Like you have to respond to the uh, to the inputs of things that are happening around you, and then you go into some sort of technology field where everything kind of is a little bit black and white, and then you're trying to then apply that to to a sort of world experience of interacting in a business world in a business world where it is a lot more based on soft skills, and I think you can use a couple of those different things to your advantage like your your ability to react quickly in a competition type situation your understanding of logic and what might be uh, correct or not And then try and blend those two things together. And I think I went through a few missteps of going, well, this is clearly obviously the right answer because, you know, and (laughs) then having to step back and and take in other people's opinions as well and realize that actually it's not all about you and your ego and your confidence that you've got from being able to do this, that or the other. So I can really understand some of those, um, some of those, I I empathize with what you're saying. um, I'm not sure I've been able to fully articulate that before or even... I've done a very good job of it, doing it right now. But <laughs> I think it's it's interesting the similarities that you've got there with that com- competition versus the the technology and having to realize how you how you approach things. I'm just wondering how you, how you applied that in your book. For do you lean on on some of that that ballroom competitiveness in the book as well?
2: Probably not so much directly. So when I think about what you said. It's that. What we do in school is very individualistic. Yeah, you have some group projects, but for the most part, you're working by yourself. When you think about the training you and I did, you would be on the racetrack practicing, but probably by yourself. In ballroom, we would rehearse by yourself. I'd be with my partner and we'd do our routine. But once you're competing, once you're on the racetrack, you're no longer the only car in that race. And now as much as you know how to take that turn, it's not that simple because there's seven other cars around you, one of them possibly spinning out of control. You need to do what you're doing but adjust to these circumstances. It's not just you, yourself, and what you can do. In ballroom, it's called floor craft. And early on when you say, well, I know my routine. I have it memorized. But, oh, there's someone in my way. I can't do that really cool spin. And you have to adjust. And as you get more senior, you learn to react to the floor you react to the music being played. You might have your routine set, but how long you hold a certain step, how you execute something, you're going to vary it based on real-time circumstances. And in the real world, we have our understanding, whether it's technology or marketing or accounting. Say, so, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know the report that you want. I know how to create an ad campaign, but what's the reality here? The reality on the ground of what's trending right now? Where are we going strategically? Oh, this particular executive isn't bought into this. So how do I adjust this to get buy-in from her? And those are the real time adjustments that we don't really practice as much in school. And that's what we have to learn to, to address. And that's where the skills in the book come in, how you communicate with other people, negotiations. It's not just sitting across so the table from someone about money. You negotiate all the time with your coworkers, with people in your company, learning how to build effective teams. That's where these other things come in that go to more than just you and your race car or me and my partner alone on the floor.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned floor craft because I think we would refer to that as race craft. So no. what's the equivalent craft <laughs> for uh, for businesses? <laughs>
2: business craft, perhaps? I'm going to have to (laughs) think about that. It would seem like the obvious one. (laughs) You know, we, we can think about that because you have your plan. Okay, we're going to try to expand our market share by 3%. And then what happens? You get a global pandemic, your supplier suddenly goes out of business, and now you have to find an alternative supplier. There's some trending story that suddenly your product is now seen as not environmentally conscious and you have to adjust to it. Lawsuits, scandals, even a key person leaves your organization. You have to in real time adjust. And you have your plan. You have your race plan. You have your ballroom routine. You have your business plan. But you have to adjust in real time. And that's the difference between someone who just gets it in theory Just studied and says, I know the material versus someone who can execute well, who can dynamically adapt to real-time circumstances. And those are the people who succeed in business. Mm. What What you were speaking about is,
1: I guess, a lot of foundational skills, you know, foundational kind of, you can't teach that and you don't want to teach that or you don't want to, sorry, you don't want to spoon feed the solution. Okay, because then you're not going to have that fluidity, you're not going to be able to pivot or adjust given those certain circumstances. How do you approach not giving too much, you know, because otherwise you, you won't be able to pivot versus just setting those foundations?
2: Yeah, great question. And this is something really important to understand. Obviously, you can learn these skills, just like you can learn to be a better public speaker, better accountant, better golfer, you can learn to be a better leader, negotiator, networker, they're all learnable. But here's the difference. It's not memorizing. When you study accounting, you memorize accounting rules. And then you look and say, well, which rule applies? Here we go, I'm going to apply the rule. There are no simple rules for leadership that always apply. There's no three steps to suddenly be a master communicator in all circumstances. These are subtle skills. So we have to teach them differently. The way we've traditionally learned is that sage on a stage, it's a person up front, your teacher, your professor, even listening to a podcast, say, okay, well, that's useful information. I'll remember when when I post on social media, use at least five hashtags. Okay, good, I'll write that down. That's not how it works for leadership. So the way we teach these skills in the class at MIT, the way they're taught at top business schools and the way you can teach them to your entire organization is through peer learning groups. Now I have a free download on the resources page of my website that goes through this in detail, but here's the idea. Create groups I recommend of about six to eight people in size, but you can do it with larger groups if you want. And within each of these groups, you want to take some content. Now, yes, you can use my book and you can divide it up. I even show you how and you read these 10 pages and next time you read those 10 pages. If you don't want to use my book, use a different book, use some articles or videos online, use a great podcast like this one, listen to the episode instead of reading some articles. But you get that content and then everyone comes together to discuss it. Now, when we think about, for example, learning sports, I can't just teach you here are the rules to cricket, go do it. What do you have to do? You need to drill. You need to scrimmage. You might even watch the tape. What do you do? What do others do? So that's what we're going to do in these sessions. When you have that discussion, oh, we just read an article on leadership. What do you think about? Oh, that's interesting. I had a different perspective. Okay, I'll have to keep yours in mind as well. I could say, you know, I have a leadership challenge. I'm trying to figure out what to do. And you jump in and say, well, here's a similar challenge I had and what I did. And here's what worked and here's what didn't. That's like watching the tape. We together can discuss how should I approach this leadership challenge, this thing I have to communicate, this negotiation I have. That is our scrimmage. That's our practice because you get a chance to participate and think in real time what's happening. And you can do drills, which would be similar to case studies used at top business schools. Let's do this negotiation simulation. You and I will take on different roles and negotiate against each other to practice, or here's a leadership case study. So doing these small groups and you just need these groups to meet for 30 to 60 minutes once or twice a month can upscale your entire organization at effectively no cost. Maybe you buy a book, maybe you use free online resources, but this gets everyone in your organization to improve. So you get a number of benefits, better workers, you get better employee engagement, so important during this time of great recession, excuse excuse me, great resignation, when so many people are quitting, people want to be engaged, it's not just about money anymore. So you engage your employees, you foster internal networks because people get to know other colleagues. These groups should not just be your teammates, they should be from different teams, so you get different perspectives, and you create a common language for your organization Because if, for example, the book you choose is good to great, you could say, oh, well, let's think of the hedgehog model. And everyone goes, oh, right, hedgehog model. We all read that. We all know that. And so you have better acronyms, models, stories, analogies to use in your communication. And again, all this is effectively free to your organization. This is the power of the book club, I suppose, in a way. That's basically what it is. You can think of it like a book club. I would definitely... Want to be a little more active and intentional in that discussion. That's a key piece. But yeah, think of it like a book club. And again, if you download that free resource on my website, I explain here are the subtle things to think about. And if you use my book, I've done the work for you. How to break it down to make it useful, whether it's for people being promoted to a new role, people being onboarded, or just general skill development.
1: Mm. So you've mentioned that it basically can be anything. Is there a could you pick a a a fictional book as an example, or or a fictional story as as something to run through? I mean, you know, I'd be interested to look at this resource, but how much emphasis is actually on the content versus the exercises and the discussions around that?
2: I think as long as the content gets you thinking about the topic. So I wouldn't necessarily pick a Disney movie. On the other hand, certainly you can think about There's a a book I recommend. I reference a whole bunch of other books on my website. There is The Ropes to Skip and The Ropes to Know, which is a pseudo-fictional story. It's fictional about some characters, but they explore topics about corporate culture. And as you read the sections, you certainly have things to think about. There's a famous type of leadership training using a movie called 12 O'Clock High. This was a World War II black and white movie from... think the 50s or 60s. And what you'll do is you'll watch 20, 30 minutes of the movie and then have a discussion about who was acting as a leader. How were they displaying this leadership? Who wasn't? What was happening? How were people changing? What was causing this? And it's a fantastic discussion. It's been used worldwide. So if you have that right movie, but again, if you pick Dumbo, I don't think there's a lot of learning out of a children's movie. So Pick content appropriately. Got you.
1: And so with this then, how how much, is this something that you've learned or or figured out by yourself and and your experience? Or is this something you validated with other leaders that has worked? Or is this something that you learned from someone else and you've just taken the idea and thought, I'm going to spin this and make this into, put this into my own voice?
2: Some of all of it. Certainly, this isn't, oh, I dreamt this up one night, and here are my ramblings. (laughs) The content in the book, the 10 chapters in the book, correspond to the 10 skills that we've seen time and again in surveys by MIT and other universities of employers, and these are the skills that they are asking for. This isn't just the quick, you know, pick, check off a few boxes. These are extended studies, and they go a lot deeper, and they map into different things that effectively you can model as these 10 skills. So that's where the source material comes from, why these are in there. Then in terms of the content itself, some of it are things I came up with, but I admit most of this, it's not like I have some insight into negotiating that no one else came up with. The way I approach it, the stories I use, or how I frame it, some of that's unique. I think chapter one career planning tends to be a little more unique. I haven't seen as much of that elsewhere, but still the general concepts, you can find it elsewhere. And I've had the advantage of 20 plus years working with other instructors in this program, MIT professors, world-class professors at Sloan, of reading lots of other books, hearing other speakers, and putting it together in this manner. So I'm not going to say, oh, I have the one insight no one else has. I do think the other advantage is having taught it for so long, the way I present it has been field tested. One of the pieces of feedback I get often is, I was reading your book, and I was reading the section, and I had a question, but as soon as I flipped the page, you answered it. That was so great. Well, that's because I've taught this so long. I know what comes next. As soon as I say this, I know the questions I will be asked, so I made sure to put that in the book. Mm.
1: And not to derail the conversation too much, but this is obviously an ongoing learning experience for you. Um, You know, you're always going to see different you know things play out differently are you revisiting the book on a regular basis or is are you happy with what's out there and that you have kind of no ambition to kind of update it of course you've got the physical version but you know when it comes to digital versions it's obviously very easy to update and i and i ask this because uh, i've recently released my first book and i've got another few in the pipeline and i just wonder how much is it how how important is it to get right also that aspect of continuously learning and having that play back into the book?
2: I do have, before I think I do another version of this, because again, it is so young, I do have other books that I would like to get out there. I also have other means of distributing content. So I blog once a week. And so that's a chance to get some content out to field test in a way and see what people are responding to, what questions people have. Then I have the app. Now, the app is my view of how books need to evolve in the future into this nonlinear format, because most people don't want to read a book front to back. And one of the ways I designed my book, for example, is you can open it and jump right into any chapter. You can start with chapter seven, go back to chapter three, move ahead to nine. You can just pick up any piece, like a toolbox, pick up the tool you need, put it down when you're done. The app itself was designed because so often we read a book We say, oh, there's so much great advice here. But three weeks later, you forget it all. You've moved on to something else. You don't have time to implement it all. And our job as authors is not just to get you to buy pieces of paper, but to change how you think and act. So the app I created, I was shocked this app didn't exist. It takes the content from the book. If you went through the book with a highlighter, these are the key ideas. They're in the app, and each day, it's going to pop up one as a notification. Just you look at it, you go, oh, right, really good point. Pops up at a time you set, and then you swipe it away. Takes you two, three seconds a day, but it helps keep the content top of mind. And I, of course, can update additional content. I can put more content into that to the users of the app. You can also use it if, for example, you're about to go into a negotiation. So, well, let me open the app because I'm not going to reread that chapter. Let me just open the app and flip through the tips. So that's why I've been working on. In fact, I have a general version of it the app, which is linked from my website and available for free on Android and iPhones, the Career Toolkit app, I have a general version called Brain Bump coming out in a month. So other authors and podcasters and content creators can put their content in there so their audiences can better retain what they read and hear.
1: Sorry, just to, just to understand that last little bit there. So this, this Career Toolkit app actually obviously gives you hints and tips from your own book, but other authors or other career authors are also able to input into this app and and surface some of their key insights through your app?
2: Into the new app, Brain Bump, because the Career Toolkit app is branded for my book. In Brain Bump, you, for example, as an author or podcaster can just say, here's a bunch of tips from a number of our shows or from the book, upload it. And one of the app users can come along and say, oh, this looks really interesting. Download that set of content and get your tips each day instead of or in addition to mine or anyone else's.
0: And you developed the app yourself or you had a team of people to do it or how did you put it together?
2: I had, I developed the concept of the app. I architected, I designed it. Now I did have a graphic designer because that's not my strength. And although I am a technology guy and I started as a software developer, my days of coding... They're not what they used to be. So I was smart enough to know I need someone who is a better app developer than I am and worked with them on that.
0: Well, in terms of the uh, the technology that's behind this then, so it's available on Android and iOS, and uh, well, do you have a web version of it? I mean, what's the actual underlying technology? Have you built a specific app for, for one or uh, for, for each platform, or is, there, is this a hybrid solution? I'm, I'm curious as to how someone from MIT approaches the uh, the hybrid versus native problem.
2: <laughs> We built in React Native so it can work across both Android and iOS. The app itself, there's not a lot of super complex advanced functionality. We're intentionally trying to keep it fairly simple. It's just about the app user getting content quickly and efficiently. There is a backend for the content creators by which they can upload their content, add their content, add other information. So if, for example, there is a set of tips from this podcast, you of course want to have those tips linked back to this podcast so someone can say, oh, that's a really good piece of advice. I want to hear that whole episode and they can go to the episode or they can go to your books page to learn more about the book if they're just exploring it and haven't bought it yet.
0: We might be interested in that, Sam. We can share other people's recommendations, the, the, the insightful people we have on this show.
1: Sure, and, and that's exactly <laughs> why I asked around the curation of the content because I was going to ask around how that citation happens. Like, Do you reference where that source came from sort of thing?
2: Within the BrainBump app, so each of the tips will have on the tip, it will have a link back to the book's website, the podcast episode, the blog article. So any content creator can put their content on there and link back to the original source to drive traffic, to drive sales, whatever. Obviously a benefit to the reader is, or the user of the app, you better retain the content. We want to make it valuable for the content providers as well, which is driving some type of traffic to them.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And what's the subscription model for Brain Bump then, if, if Chris and I want to wanna leverage that?
2: For the end user, the app user, it is completely free. For the content creator, because this is driving traffic to your site, there will be a small monthly subscription in line with many of the other tools that you use for email lists, for social media tools. So very low price point, just so that you can help drive some more traffic to to whatever properties you want.
1: Mm. Yeah, I like that because it's you're not having to go into the app. Like it's it, it's, it's uh, my assumption is it's, it's pretty much in the notification whether people are going to click through. But there's a there's probably enough information in the notification to say everything you want to say. They tap that, and then it's, and it's then you're in the app. But you can consume it from the notification screen. Is that right?
2: Exactly, because again, with a flashcard app, no one is going to open it. You might do it day one, day two, and then you forget about But here, you just set what time you want. Maybe it's 9 a.m. as you go into the office. Maybe it's 7 p.m. It's whatever time is best for you. And you get the notification of the type of content you want, when you want it. It takes two seconds. And that's all you need, just that little reminder. Just that, oh, right, I got to remember to do that. I got to remember, that's some good advice. And you swipe it away so it doesn't impose a lot of effort on the end user.
1: Mm, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see where this goes and how it changes people's well learning habits, basically. But it's great. With so, I'm going to dork out now a little bit on this on this this empire that the Career Toolkit has. Then, so you've mentioned you've got a dev team. What is the team the the entirety of this team and has that grown? You know, you released it last year. Has it grown since then? Or are you were you you know I want to build a team around this this strategy that i have uh which kind of came first there
2: i have a long-term strategy that does involve future books the app some other projects and so team members most of whom are on contract because that's the best way to build a small business these days especially if you you don't yet have full-time work as we expand and grow and i expect the brain bump app to do very well based on our initial market research I can start to bring on people full time because we'll have enough work, we'll have enough interest, we'll have enough revenue to support that. So I've, I've got a long term plan that stretches out a number of years. And I'll just continue to bring on people as we develop different parts of the business.
1: Mm. It's really great. It's really great. And kind of reining in back to this, the career development and various things like that. I mean, At the offset, this the Brain Bump app and the Career Toolkit app is a very, very good idea. What behaviors have you witnessed where you think this slots right into that and and could support people's career development?
2: Yeah, good question. I again, as I mentioned earlier, but I'll go into a little more detail. I think this is the future of books because books aren't about sitting down and gaining that linear experience it is moving to, to borrow a term from technology, just in time. It's that concept of, I need this right here, right now, and I need it available there. We don't carry around books with us. And that's unfortunate. And how many times have you ever said, oh, wait, I want to bring up something I read in a book, but I can't remember exactly what it was, whether it's a statistic or an idea. You have it in your pocket now. It's there, referenceable, but also through that Passive notification helps you retain it and keep it top of mind. And I think as people learn, we're going to want to do more of this. When you think, for example, about corporate development, corporate LD, learning and development, when a company says, okay, we're going to take 20 people and put them in this one day seminar to teach some new skill or knowledge, whether it's how to use the new accounting system or whether it's how to be a line manager or whatever, whatever they're training, when they put all those people in that room, it is costing them tens of thousands of dollars. The hourly cost of each person in the room, the cost of the training materials, the person you bring in to train them, that content, that person's time, that is a significant undertaking, typically $10,000 or more. If you could then spend a couple extra dollars to help people bear retain it, if it's costing you tens, couple hundred dollars per month to help people retain it, that is well worth it. That is an expense a company will take every time. And so I can see this being used to supplement the way people are learning and engaging with content going forward.
1: Mm. And you and you mentioned business there, and it's kind of got my, my mind ticking a little bit. Could this, or maybe this is part of the part of the pipeline, could this be something that almost a, a, a business or an enterprise white labels and that they have, whether they've got their own way of doing things. I used to work for an, a consultancy called And Digital and they were very much, you know, they've got their, their words for things and their own language and various things like that. Is there a way that this sort of could be white labeled and, and delivered as part of an enterprise?
2: We're looking at different ways to do that. We're speaking with a couple large corporations to figure out what's the best way to deliver it for their needs. But you're you're on the right track there,
1: Chris. Have you got any? Did you want to rein this in a little bit? Because I'm just gonna.
0: Oh well, I've been quiet for a while because I've been going through the app. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I like I do like the uh, the the little sort of snippets, and I think that um, although I am I am a fan of a traditional uh, book. And and have a small library, um, <laughs> and we always take uh, books away with us on holidays. Um, but I do like the this sort of little snippet of being able to give a little uh, inspirational quote a day, which is kind of how it comes across, really, when you look at the notifications when you've broken down uh, a, a book into flashcards, essentially. And I, I like the fact that you can um, you can you can save the things as well, and favorite your things, and return to them i think that'll be useful uh, i think it probably um aligns more with how people are these days where you know our social media is delivered to us with a sort of instant instantaneous you know feed of constant new information you know that probably fits quite well with here is your little tiny you know 30 second sound bite for the day or you know, whatever the equivalent of a, of a sound bite is that's text. Um a text bite? Maybe let's go with that. Uh so <laughs> I think it's quite nice um that that you, you're able to deliver it like that. I, I'm actually curious though, on the um on the brain bump idea, is that the is this your first your first sort of startup idea that you've put together rather than working on other people's or is this uh have have you gone through a few in the past?
2: I've gone through a few in the past. Usually I've come on a round, so later, but in a couple of cases I came on back when it was on the drawing board. So I've done some early stage startups. I've been through the process of raising money, of going to market, of getting customers. So it's a familiar path for me, thankfully.
0: Mm. I'm conscious you see that we've spoken for quite some time now and uh, we, we haven't covered a huge amount about like your career, how all of the information that came to be in this book, because I think that it's been so fascinating to talk to you about the MIT piece, a part of your life uh, that you know, getting into the industry, putting all of this book together, and your your visions for where you're going to take this for for the future. But I, I'm curious: are there any? Um, you know, what what other learning points have we have we missed out? Because we've, we've we've picked up a couple of snippets that I didn't expect us to come across, like ballroom dancing. So, you know, what other things have we missed out in
2: your career that have led you to this point? One of the things early on, one of the things that really helped me understand career planning was a moment early on. Now, so many people, when they think about career planning, it's just, well, I hope one day to have this title. And that's it. That's the extent of the plan. Now, if you think about what we do at work, you would never say, yeah, I have this two-year-long project. Ah, That's a long time. Let's not bother creating a plan. That's just too hard to think that far ahead. We'll just wing it. That never works. You have to create a plan. You need your timeline, your budget, your milestones. You know from the start, it is not going to work out exactly how you put it down on paper, but that's okay. You adjust as you go. If you need that for a two year plan, think about what you must need for a five or 10 year plan. And yet people just say, oh, that that's too far and I'm gonna give up. So early in my career, I didn't have much of a plan either. And I was at one of my first companies, it's a junior engineer. And I noticed there were a lot of meetings going on with the senior people, not the regular weekly meeting, but a bunch of other meetings. I didn't really pay attention to it. I should have. I knew something was happening, but I didn't really focus on it. And then about two months later, my boss calls me into his office and he says, this may come as a surprise to you, or maybe not. And it was a surprise, but it shouldn't have been because of those meetings. (laughs) He said, this is my last day at the company. I'm leaving. I'm going to go start a new company. I'm taking these guys with me. And I would love for you to join. What had happened was the founders had a falling out and the company basically split in two. Now, fortunately, he invited me to go with him to this new company. And of course, the ones who were staying, the other founders, they knew he was going to be poaching some people and they sat me down and said, we know he's probably offered you a job. We would love for you to stay and here's why and here's our future. I thought, oh, well, this is good. I've got these two options. How do I decide? which one is right for me and then i quickly realized this was the 1990s i had more than two options this was a dot com era there was lots of demand for engineers as there is again today okay so now i have two plus many options how do i know what's right for me should i stay should i go to this spin off company or split off company i should say should i go find something else And to answer that, I realized I needed to have a clearer plan. I needed an evaluation metric, which wasn't just, well, who's going to give me the most money? It was, where am I going? Who is going to help me grow and train and take me down the path I want? And that's when I really started to think about my career plan. And I was able to employ tools that I had developed back in college to address that and to think about my plan.
0: Mm. And had you had any sort of plan
2: before then at all? It was show up and presumably grow and be more senior, <laughs> but that was it. That was the kind of vague wave of my hands. In fact, coming out of MIT, I knew I didn't want to go to Wall Street, very popular option. I didn't want to work in big tech, which at the time was Microsoft, IBM, and I didn't want to go to consulting. So then I wasn't sure what to do, and I wound up in a startup kind of by default. It wasn't that that was what I wanted. It was just I eliminated all the other options. I remember showing up thinking, I guess I'll do this job because I don't really know what else to do. Now, thankfully, I realized startups are where I belong. That is a good fit for me. And when I've gone and consulted to large companies, I've said, well, consulting, I've said, I will follow your rules. But when they've tried to hire me, I said, I will do it. But understand, I'm a bit of a bull in a China shop. Now, if that's what you want, fantastic. If not, I'm not the right guy for you because I like the dynamicism of a startup. I like the constant change and the mixing things up and whatever worked today, we have to change it up for tomorrow. So startups did turn out to be the right path, but I fell into it.
0: See, for me, I, um, I did set out a plan when I was at at university. And so I decided I'd learned from, from university that, uh, I needed a lot of stuff going on. I needed a lot of projects. I needed a lot of, uh, I needed things to have a beginning, middle, end, so I could move on to other things. And I had a desire to earn a certain salary figure. Didn't really have a job title in mind, but a salary figure. And I also wanted to um, buy a Porsche 944, which is, you know, something I'd dreamt of since I was a child. And I decided I wanted to do all of that by the time I was 25 which I eventually managed to do by the time I was 26. So I wasn't too far off. But what I think I realised was it was quite a shallow goal (laughs) for it to be based on cash and a car and to deal with projects. You know, I I think I was fortunate enough to figure out that the way I was going to do that and get to that figure was to sort of... um, pick up as many names as I could along the way. So I ended up working for the BBC and for Amazon and places like that. And it was more of a, you know, my CV is now worth something because it has these names on it. But it, since that time, it's, um, I, I think it's almost been a little rudderless if anything, because I haven't been able to flesh it out with something that was more of a meaningful goal. And I'm wondering when you actually came around to de- to deriving that plan how did you make sure that that plan was meaningful?
2: Yeah, good question. And certainly it sounds like you were well-organized and you had a plan and a goal and achieved it. You just realized later that might not have been the goal. The right goal, yes. <laughs> Maybe it was right for 25, though. I think, I think for 25, it worked, really. <laughs> I have in chapter one, in creating your career plan, a set of questions to help you start to figure out what is right. And those questions, by the way, are available for free on the resources page of the website. So you can download these questions. Now, some of them are things like, how much money do you want to make? Do you want three vacation homes? Or are you fine with just your one, two bedroom in the suburbs? But they're also questions such as, what type of impact do you want to have on your field or in your community? What's the work-life balance that you want? And we have to recognize that the answers to these questions can change over time. So at 25, money might have been your primary motivator. I know lots of consultants who at 25 think, I love being a consultant. I get on a plane every Monday morning. I fly to the client. We're in some city. It's fun. Expense accounts. Racking up all those hotel points and miles. But then at 45, they're saying, I don't want to be on the road. I want to spend time with my family. I'm tired of sitting in airports. So we have to recognize your answers to these questions can change over time. But the questions themselves aren't just about the job. It is about your larger lifestyle because we want our job and our career to fit into the life that we want instead of trying to construct a life around the job that we want.
0: I mean, some of these goals, I suppose, can also be a little contradictory as well. And obviously, to the point of them changing over over time, how far ahead do you suggest that people plan? And how how frequently do you suggest that they revise that plan?
2: Good questions. Plan as far ahead as you can. Now, it usually has some long-term vision, which is become a CTO, start my own company, oversee sales in all of Europe, whatever your particular goal is. So that's your long-term goal. And then you want to back out steps along the way, just like your project plan. You don't just say, well, here's where we want to be in two years, done. What are those milestones and checkpoints? And I go through a whole process of how you can back that out. Now, your plan, just like a project plan at work, you need to regularly revisit and revise. So something you can do is I I recommend coming back to it regularly. Right now, if you pause the podcast, but you have to promise to come back to it, pause (laughs) the podcast, go to your phone, create a calendar event called Think About My Career for 30 or 60 minutes, and set that as a recurring event every six months. That's it. So you can pause the podcast and do that. And now that you're back, you now have a reminder that at least every six months, you are going to sit there and think for at least 30 minutes about your career. You can do it more often. You have those questions I mentioned that are available on the resources page. Those are great questions to think about when you're driving to work, when you're in the shower, talk about them with your loved ones, with your friends, with your coworkers can talk about other times, but the very least, you have this reminder now every six months to make sure you come back to thinking about your career.
0: And I think there's something that's important about that. I mean, I don't know if you recommend this in your your book, but I always try to write things down as well and use them as a reminder so that you're essentially trying to focus on things in a positive light so that you can almost manifest them into existence. I mean, you know, I I don't know how much I I read into any spirituality around that, but I think the fact that you're actually looking at and you're trying to believe and see that it actually happens, uh, I feel that it has a a greater chance of actually coming to fruition.
2: And so this now goes to your personal preference and style. Some people like to write it down. Some people like to do the... Uh, what's the term for when you die, the obituary, or if you prefer not to be so morbid, think about your retirement dinner. Yeah, what do you want on your tombstone? It's probably a little bit more morbid. (laughs) Right, it's what do you want people to be saying about you 30, 40 years from now? That might be your end goal. Or it might be shorter term. It might be, you know what, in 10 years, I want to have two kids and a job that doesn't take more than so many hours a week, so I can go throw the ball with them after work, or even I can take off to go see their school play that's at three in the afternoon. So figure out what you want, wherever it makes sense. And if it helps to write it down, do that. If it helps to do the once a day writing down your goal, some people like doing that. I'm not big on writing this stuff down. I do tend to keep it in my mind, but that works for me. So whatever process works for you, you can employ it.
0: Well, I think that, that's probably a good note on which to leave because we've spoken for a while, as we mentioned, there's plenty more to unpack in here. And especially with brain bump coming around, um, maybe we need to pick up and see how brain bump did. We'll look back and obviously we'll get another, another chance to, uh, to talk to you and hear your amazing voice because I want to fi- figure out again uh, when <laughs> when did you start speaking, etc. But leave. Let's leave that for another uh, for for another podcast because um, I think you might have the best voice we've had so far. That I, I think I'll I'll give you that. Sam, would you agree? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Outside of my own, of course. Honestly. Right. Okay. Well, there we go. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you. I'm I'm short the British accent, which would of course make it much cooler. but at least I've got the tone.
0: Absolutely. The tone's great. Beside from talking about your voice anymore. um,
2: (laughs) Have you got any final thoughts? Any final words you want to leave us on for today? I will share a couple thoughts and then give the website where you can find all this stuff. Remember that with these skills, it is about getting just incrementally better. Don't worry about being the best in the world. If you get even just slightly better, you get a massive ROI in terms of your success and effectiveness. And of course, we want to learn these skills in groups. Don't learn them alone. It's, again, like learning cricket. You don't just say, well, I'm going to read a book it and be done. You need to be with other people and discuss it and talk about it. Just like to learn cricket, you need to actually scrimmage and drill with other people. So create those peer learning groups. Now, you can find this information and more on my book's website at thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can see where to buy the book, Amazon, and usual places. You can get in touch with me or follow me on social media. You can see more content I put out either through the weekly blog or by downloading the free app, the Career Toolkit app. It's linked from my website and available for free on the Android and iPhone stores. There's also the resources page. I have a number of free downloads, including that development guide, so you can create those peer learning groups at work. I have the career questions that we mentioned and a whole bunch of other questions, as well as links to other free resources online and other books I recommend. All of that is available at thecareertoolkitbook.com. Then there is Cognosco Media, C-O-G-N-O-S-C-O, media.com. Cognosco Media has two things of interest. For any aspiring writers out there, there's a list of resources for how to create your book. Everything from how to find an editor, to what's the trim size, to how to find an agent if you want to do traditional publishing, how to market your book, tax implications. So it's all organized. These are the best resources I found online for anyone doing a book. And then there's a link to the upcoming Brain Bump app, which will be out in april of 2022 so that's on cognoscomedia.com great good resources i think and maybe they maybe cognoso can, oh i've
0: said it wrong i've messed it up Cognosco Media and brain bump can be the topics for uh, for our next conversation but i think getting a little better and learning from your learning with your peers is a good summary for today so thank you uh thank you for joining us today mark it's been a pleasure to talk to you
2: thank you guys for having me on the show What a
0: voice. Oh, yeah. Great voice. <laughs> really great voice. Yeah, we've teased that in the previous episode as well, didn't we? I forgot. I mean, the, he, his voice is so good. True radio voice. Best <laughs> so far. Top of the list for voices in the voice, the, the voice um, league table that we have. We should give away voice awards. <laughs> maybe maybe mark is certainly the uh, the recipient of that so far anyway uh next week's show we have rob dickinson so this one we recorded a little while back do you remember this resurface labs
1: yes i do
0: yeah we had a good conversation about um about rob Starting out his life as a, a programmer as a kid, he worked through Dell, through Intel, uh, through a variety, wide variety of things. And so we talk an awful lot with Rob about digital transformation, APIs, and uh, how businesses are preparing for the future. And there's a bit of Internet Things in there as well,
1: and Commodore 64.
0: Oh yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some cool stuff in that. It's a good. Uh, it's a good trip down memory lane, I think, as well for for those who started. Uh doing a little bit of playing around with computers in the eighties, late eighties and early nineties, I reckon. Look forward to that one. Yeah, that'll be a good one. So that's it for this week. I think it's just the usual things. Uh you know, go to that dot tech oh go to that tech dot show. I'll get the dot in the right place. Uh that's our website. You can see all fifty odd episodes. It's fifty-five episodes now, I think. Uh so you can go and check all of those out and uh you can uh, like us if you find us anywhere on social media that'll probably be twitter and linkedin and the like oh yeah drop us a shekel as well this is a <laughs> sam loves that phrase this is a podcast that we do for free for the love of it and so if you're helping us uh, get along by buying us a coffee you can find that link on our website and uh, you can help us buy us a coffee because that's what keeps us going i really need a coffee too <laughs> so there you go help sam out he's tired that's why i've done all of the talking and uh, <laughs> you can help you can help fund sam with his new braces and his uh, and his coffee addiction give us a five-star review as well wherever you find us That really does help for uh, getting more people to, to listen to us as they do already from around the world so you are one of many thank you again listener for joining and we'll see you again next week how much is a shekel?